There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Wonky Show. Cost of living is biting hard. We'll get across new findings, harassment and sexual misconduct. Can we measure it? And research. We're finally over the horizon. Or back in or something. Anyway, it's all coming up. But that's because Durham has got a senior member of, of staff who's who's really switched on and maybe, you know, maybe considered woke. But if that's woke, I'm woke. I love it. I want to be part of that. I stand as the overlord of woke alongside that senior colleague there because it's important. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me to go over the horizon this week, as usual, three fabulous guests. In York, Pete Quinn as an inclusion consultant. Pete, your highlight of the week, please. I've had a busy week on the road, but I was at Kew Gardens on Tuesday. Highlight of the week is I delivered my first webinar in a long time to a lot of uh, mental health mentors who work with students in higher education. 200 were meant to be there, 450 turned up, and 429 were still there after 45 minutes, which to me suggests it was an okay webinar. Well, there we go. In Camden Town this week, Jess Lister is Associate Director of Education at Public First. Jess, your highlight of the week, please. Hello, Jim. The sun is out and the Horizon deal has been done, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that one because we've been waiting for a long time and hopefully now we can stop talking about it. Fantastic. And in Leeds this week, Sunday Blake is an Associate Editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. Hi. Yeah, I'm on the second day of the Ray's Annual Conference and for people who know RAISE, it's a network of like academics, practitioners and students who are interested in promoting engagement. And this year's theme is belonging, which is, you know, my jam. <laughs> and they're just absolutely smashing it out of the park. Every session is having my brain swirling and heart singing, making me feel really positive about the sector. And then today I'm on the closing panel to answer questions about my own research in this area. So, yeah, really looking forward to that. The last sort of 24 hours has been the highlight of this week and will continue to be so. So, yes, we start this week with cost of living. Three new reports this week shine a spotlight on how hard it's getting to participate in HE, Pete. Yep, certainly. So cost of living pressures are on lots of people's minds as the term begins for many has begun and will begin. It's important to say this is necessarily just the cost of living crisis. I think we saw a lot of of, uh, financial impact still hung over from the lockdown phases of COVID and kind of financial concerns were a big theme of that. But we've got three reports out. We've got Save the Student. This is their 11th year of reporting. The ONS and Black Bullion, which is a financial learning platform. And they all say kind of similar things. The the, uh, Save the Student one points out the the uplift in maintenance loans in Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland that hasn't been reflected in, in England. Their, their rises are overshadowing the, the what they call a miserly 2.8% uplift in the maintenance grant. I think the ONS is, is quite an interesting piece. They do 25 interviews with, with students across the board and point out the kind of obvious that we've seen across the site for quite a number of months now that careful budgeting isn't going to solve students' difficulties in the cost of living crisis. And, you know, people aren't resorting to not eating enough food 
and getting into debt, which we kind of knew about and kind of would expect. What's interesting and I think insightful of the three of these is the Black Bullion report, the student confessions, they call it. It's Instagram-based, where they have conversations on Instagram. So quite a big take-up. And some, you know, some some interesting areas that may not be on on people's radars, people pawning uh, PlayStations, Xboxes, MacBooks, or almost in one case, but then they read Black Bullion and realized they didn't need to, and there were other things they might do. And then sadly, an engagement ring as well is, is one of the things that's pawned. So it's it's kind of quite hard in-your-face stuff which I think would be be great for a wider audience to understand this this kind of theoretical cost of living thing is actually really impacting in practice on on many many students. Yes, I mean while we're on that kind of you know, be good to get a wider audience. Jess, if if I look at the ONS stuff, there's really interesting little kind of thing on the on the methodology for, that they've used. And one of the things it says halfway down is users of this data will include the Department for Education and the Office for Budget Responsibility. And I was sat there thinking, in what way? Yeah, it's it's a really good piece of qualitative research, you know, lots of interviews with students and the ONS you know, does do a lot of student data polling as well. They did a lot during the pandemic to sort of track this. The thing that, you know, the DfE needs and, and doesn't have is, you know, if you're not going to put maintenance loan up and there's a gap between what students can get in terms of income and what they're spending, what is that gap? How big is it? How much is it increasing by? And you know who's who's going to start making up the difference because it can't be parents anymore it's struggling to be students as we've sort of seen from from these three reports and the dfe seems to just sort of twiddle its thumbs and and point at the obr or point at the ons so yeah we're not not seeing the right type of research i don't think as, as good as these pieces are but do you have a sense of why this isn't kind of cutting through into decision making? You know, is this a problem inside DFE? Is it a treasury thing? Is it just the overall DFE budget has got very big and the treasury saying, well, you can't have any more? I mean, what's going on politically, do you reckon? Yeah, so we had a 2.8% increase, which is obviously massively below inflation. And I suspect it's it's cross your fingers and hope that that increase doesn't need to be much bigger, that, you know, there are other ways of, of plugging the gap and the, the sort of overall maintenance loan and tuition fee loan bill does, doesn't need to get to get much bigger because I guess once you increase the ceiling it's it's difficult to bring it back down again and and you know there is a lot of in lots of different bits of policy a hope that inflation has gone up but will come down and you can just smooth through this middle bit but I think what we're seeing for the sort of second start of term in a row I hate the term cost of living crisis because it seem like it's it will just be over soon you know crisis crises come and go I think this is it's the second year in a row we're seeing you know students really really struggling to make the costs that the costs keep rising and no one's sort of stepping in to, to support so far. Sunday, you're at an event that must be looking at the impacts of some of this. And, and, and whilst often there's a long lead in time on research, presumably there's some bits and bobs that you've seen that are kind of reinforcing this. I think one of the things that frustrates me a little bit with these kinds of research surveys, reports, is that it feels very frustrating from a sort of policy angle to just constantly be hearing about how terrible things are when with like sort of no kind of action to rectify that, help that sort of thing. And you wrote a really good piece on the site, I think this week about how there was a sort of big sort of like boom of like interest in the cost of living and how it's impacting students. And, you know, you had your 101, (laughs) the infamous 101 ways to reduce the cost on students article. And then very little sort of action has been sort of taken up. But one of the things that has come up in the 
conference over the last sort of day and will will be spoken about is on the agenda to be spoken about today as well is what how universities can sort of reassess how they're holding space for students in a way that understands the restrictions on their time on their commitments their financial um, restrictions and one of the things I saw that was great was this program and and by the way these initiatives are being done on a shoestring as well so I think the the program I'm about to talk about was done on a three thousand pound grant which you know we all know is no money at all and that was a library initiative where they looked at the library as like one of the sole points of contact for some students because obviously you know they're not going to the student union they're not going to the sports club they're not even like sitting in the cafeteria because they can't afford to buy the food (laughs) which is another issue by the way but what they are doing is prioritizing you know the bare bones of their university experience which is they have to go to the library and they have to get their work done and Again, this sounds so depressing to be talking about and it sounds so like horrible to be going like, oh, well, what's what's the bait? What's the absolute minimum that we can where we can meet students or where they're coming onto campus? And that's that's in the library. But there is an element of not optimism, but there's an element of being proactive there, which is which is something I, I'm not necessarily seeing across the sector. You know, this idea of like, oh, it's awful. You know, there's a cost of living, there's inflation, the funding system's broken, da, 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 da. And then coming to the conference and meeting, you know, professional service staff on the ground who are revolutionising the way that students are engaging on campus in a way that is compassionate and understands the restraints on their time. I think there's these like little stories that aren't necessarily getting the headlines that that other institutions could be benefiting from. Pete, this in some ways reminds me a bit of the debate that is often there about the climate crisis, right? So obviously there's lots of people that would say you can make little changes to your behavior and then we'll save the planet and other people would say well hold on no none of that will scratch the surface this is kind of you know we need big government action can universities make a difference on this or are we really kind of fiddling around whilst you know dfe's rome burns yeah i think um it's a great analogy actually just somebody just touched on uh, i'm involved at university of york with derwent college just their college council and i what I see is initiatives, there are some at university level about giving cash away and, and reducing food costs and those sort of things, which I think you've touched on the site. But giving free food to students in a place where they don't have to pay entry and don't feel marginalised or kind of othered in doing that is it's not such a difficult task if you put your mind to it. But I think it needs institutional support and institutional acknowledgement, much like the climate crisis. We have to admit there's a problem before we can start to tackle it effectively. But it's just like, you know, if, if you're just giving people a 20p discount on on their cup of tea, that's not going to cut the surface just as can you recycle your own rubbish carefully, please, is not going to, you know, touch the size when it comes to dealing with the kind of climate crisis we've got. We've got to focus on like big things too, like cost of food and providing food for students, transportation costs, and as Sunday said, a place for people to go where they don't have to, to spend money to be there and they can benefit freely as being part of their academic community, which is a huge part of student well-being. Being able to actively participate and contribute to your academic community underpins positive well-being. We know that and it and it's about doing that. But I would just say that there are a lot of student support services and lots of my Moshi colleagues who are doing little pockets of good practice, but they need overarching institutional support to do it. Jess, obviously in the political debate there's lots of people that would say, well, there are too many people going to university. And, you know, 
I'm the first to say, well, you know, more doesn't mean less. But if if there's a ceiling on the amount of money that DFE can get from the Treasury for all of this stuff, even if some of those calculations are sort of, you know, based on 30 or 40 year projections, there does come a point, doesn't there, where there are so many people participating in HE, if that's the ceiling, that, you know, for about half of them, that, that experience is miserable and they're not getting everything out of it that they should. Yeah, so I was just looking back this morning at some work we did last year with the EPP Foundation and HEPI, where we looked at sort of the cost of living crisis round round one and, and what people thought students needed in terms of support. What came out from that is students as a group, it was sort of seen shouldn't be prioritised ahead of, you know, pensioners or people in support of universal credit, you know, again, some of which are students. Students as a group weren't singled out as those that were going to be in need of, of sort of cost of living support was really really popular and it's not surprising that it's popular is things like maintenance grants which we obviously used to have don't have at the minute particularly targeted at students who need them Uh, you know not all students are struggling at the minute but lots and lots of them are as you say Uh, and I feel like there's there's a lot you can do within the sort of you know number of students we have now isn't being done you know when it comes back to this question of of who gets to go and how many people get to go you know, the benefits of going to university still stand, but what we're sort of seeing over time as, you know, maintenance loan amounts don't keep up with the costs of things and the price of inflation is, is you know, as lots of people have written about and have written about on Wonky, that student experience and that graduate premium attached to that is, is going to weaken and weaken. And I think it's it's a bit more of an existential problem for the sector than, than some realise if it continues in the way it is. Sunday, I guess there's kind of three things you can do here. You can either give students more money, you can take action to reduce the amount of money that they have to spend on the things that they need to do to participate or you can you know effectively require there to be less participation you can ask people you can restructure timetables and get them to come to campus less you can make clear that they might not need to join a you know a club or society or whatever what's what's your sense of the of where the sector's at right now on that balance of three because i worry a lot about that third category i had a really interesting conversation with someone who is working in HE consultancy this week around these sort of free options. And he was saying to me that this idea of sort of giving out money, one, it's very difficult because of all the bureaucracy that's sort of involved in applying for bursaries. There's also a lot of stigma involved. Students who understand that these, you know, these, you can't engage with outreach or bursaries if you don't know they're there and there are some students who are more fluent in 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 the help that's available the students who feel like they belong to the university are more likely to ask the university for help you know there's all these sort of like different barriers just getting more money in the first place but the other thing with bursaries and I do understand these arguments but I'm also a little bit against them in that there are schemes I've come across where students are given sort of vouchers but they're only allowed to spend those vouchers in the university shop which I understand it's keeping the finances within the campus whatever but they're not allowed to spend it on like alcohol for example so the voucher doesn't work in the student bar and in at the moment Wonky and Pearson are doing some research on uh, the cost of living and how it impacts students sense of belonging and you know if you come to that if you come to that rule around not being able to spend your voucher on a free pound pint in the student bar you'd be like well of course like they shouldn't have to spend it on alcohol 
right? That's some, that, that's not something that's, you know, important. It's a drug. It's, you know, all this sort of thing. But actually, the serendipitous sort of lin- like liminal spaces in which students have interactions with their peers are so important for things like networking, are so important for things like being able to go to the pub and have, you know, I'm talking about one pint, I'm not talking about binge drinking, or even like just going to the bar and having like a non-alcoholic drink with your peers is so important. And actually we're, we're seeing that come through in the research that if you're going to campus and you're going to your lecture and then you're getting back on your hour-long train and going home again... You're not going to go in because you're not going to have, why Why would you go in? Like, there's no other reason for you to go in. So I do worry a little bit about how rigid, like, these schemes are when it comes to students and how, when when we look at what students need, our assumptions around, like, the absolute bare necessities of, like, existence, like, food, having your bills paid, that's it. Like, it's it's really simplistic way of understanding campus as a community and involvement in that community. Interestingly, Pete, all summer, obviously, I've been, whilst people have been on the beach, me and that there, Livia, from the team, have been out training and talking to student union officers. And one of the things I keep asking them is, which officer is on the university's cost of living group? And to my moderate surprise, most of those groups aren't really running anymore. Is that a problem? I think it's a huge problem. I totally agree with what Jess said. I deliberately said cost of living pressures because crisis gives the idea. It's a bit like, oh, you know, the pandemic's over sort of thing when we know that there's stuff uh, still going on. And I'm sure when the, the sun goes down and winter comes, I'm afraid we're all going to be coughing and, and sneezing a little bit. The uh, The point I wanted to make around this as well, though, is yes, we need student representation of those bodies. But also there are some really quick fixes that you can do to make sure that money gets to students quickly. So that link between worrying about money and mental health is well known and well established now. And Black Bullion, who were a source of this, some of the data we were discussing today, one of the things they've done with a number of their universities they work with is implement very quickly a platform that means the money that students need in an emergency or they get from a grant gets into their bank account really quickly. And it avoids all that bureaucratic stress, both for students and for employees. This is one thing around mental health in universities people in the finance teams maybe not being given new systems and new colleagues very recently having to try and process funding that students desperately need and it's taking days and days to reach them we can do something quickly around that and and that's certainly something we should be doing Jess obviously the other thing that's been going on for a few months now is you know this increasing level of controversy and concern around the we might call the performance of the efficacy of the office for students and you know One of the things I've been doing this summer as well is looking at the bursary packages that are available from lots of universities and whether or not they've changed since they were written in 2019 to get the last access and participation plan through. OFS hasn't really done a lot in this space other than release a kind of research report earlier on in the year. Is there a regulation, is there a role for regulation here in kind of causing universities to get better at this or would regulation just make it all worse? Yeah, I feel feel the regulation thing will come when you start seeing higher levels of dropout, lower levels of completion, sort of lower graduate outcomes, if that makes sense. Um, all of all a bit late, yeah. So, you know, you would want the OFS to do, if you're sitting in the sector, is is for them to to start thinking about this now in terms of what they will be regulating in 18 months' time, three years' time, and sort of try and get ahead of the issue. I think historically the OFS getting ahead of issues has been a bit of a challenge for them. You know, we haven't seen very much from this from people like you know, John Blake, the director of fair access. There has been a lot of work going on in the last sort of a year or so, rewriting access and participation plans. 
I suppose it's it's just a note that as those are all being finalised, it would have been nice to have seen a bit more of a push towards sort of bursaries and, and cost of living support as part of that sort of student access and success package. Yes, that kind of focus on the rearview mirror may well be a, a problem. Good. Well, lots on the site about this as ever. For now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, I'm Mark Whelan, and this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about research culture at universities, especially how one measures it and evidences it. Now, universities, funders and central government are increasingly interested in research culture and in building and supporting positive, inclusive research cultures at universities. But just how do you measure or evidence or demonstrate that you have a good, positive research culture, say, for grant applications or in the forthcoming REF, the Research Excellence Framework, coming in 2028? My little piece looks at how we've measured research environment or research culture in the past and offer some suggestions about how we can measure what sort of data we can use to measure it in the future. If you're interested in some of my suggestions, then you can, of course, read my piece. Now, this autumn, we'll see the Office for Students run a survey to determine more accurately the prevalence of sexual violence and harassment in English universities. And on the site, we've been thinking about that, Jess. Yes, back to the Office for Students. There's two things we're expecting from them soon on the issue of gender-based violence and harassment. The first, as Jim just said, is a survey that's going to try and determine the prevalence of sexual violence and harassment in English universities. We know from sort of existing ONS and similar data that, that students as a group are more likely to experience harassment than sort of the general public large. So it's it's a sort of first go, I think, trying to get a really accurate picture of what is happening in our universities on this on this issue. And then the second is we're overdue a consultation response from the OFS on a plans for a new regulatory requirement for providers to have them take more substantive steps on sexual harassment. So this includes a slightly more sector wide definitions, policies being drafted uh, and issues around non-disclosure agreements, besides student staff relations, uh, other things like that. That consultation finished in May, so we're due a response soon as well. One of the issues is is that this data isn't really collected systematically and where it is collected by universities, you know, they, they do shy away from publishing the findings. So hopefully, you know, this is going towards a kind of world in which we have a much better understanding of what's happening and a much kind of more sector wide approach to tackling the issue. Pete, I keep my eye on these sorts of things, both in the UK, around the devolved nations too, but also around the world. And I guess one of my in one of my bad moods, I would say that that the office for students is having to kind of convene this kind of research represents kind of collective sector failure. Is that fair? I don't know who's who's sort of done a really good job on this globally, though, because when I've, I've been out to Hong Kong for a number of years now, and I've seen in the universities I work in there, and I, I go into schools and colleges there, but the universities there have a very explicit message about the, the lack of tolerance towards sexual assault. And um, here are the resources you can you can. Meet. And when I was in China, I did a couple of informal sessions highlighting the progress and, and sadly more recently, the lack of progress we'd made because there was quite a lot of, of good news sort of four or five years ago with what seemed to be, you know, an acknowledgement of it. Cambridge Vice Chancellor at the time had done a very powerful video message, which I kind of opened my session with. I think it's a bit like the gender pay gap in companies the reporting requirement that you absolutely legally are bound to do it and and making it that transparent. I think that's the only way that we're going to actually get visibility on this. There's huge amounts of work going on in UK institutions in terms of report and support and 
you know, kind of links with sexual violence centers and making sure that we've we've got a really good support network for people who are, you know, being involved in incidents of this nature. But there isn't enough um, people willing to put their head above the parapet and say, yep, this is an issue. We need to solve it. And this is how we're going to do it. And in Probably, some ways, Pete, I think of this a bit like in in the same way I think of mental health. So, you know, lots of activity over the past four or five years, but we can't actually demonstrate whether it's worked. Well, I entirely agree. Although I think with the mental health side, I think we could agree that I think there has been some progress kind of internally. And we know now with, with Tezo and Smarten and those research organisations, we've got a better chance of uh, doing better work in mental health because we kind of know what works. We know what we can arrive at. Now, there's some good stuff around, coming from the States around what can intervene and what can help. But there's there's no there's got to be resource and there's got to be willingness to acknowledge the problem, get on on board with actually solving it and and getting on with solving it. But that's a, that's a culture change issue as well. And I was I was going to say something about you know being being led by a government that's not necessarily leading by example in this area. And I suppose that kind of filters down. So I think we could do a better job in education of learning from our own experiences, changing our behaviours, and and doing something about it. Sunday, you're convening a kind of whole, in conjunction with Anna Bull from 1752 Group, a whole, whole clutch of articles on, 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 on all of this. What, um, where, where are you at? Yeah, so this is, this is an exciting series. And I think what we wanted to do is we actually wanted to do something really constructive and proactive when sort of dealing with sexual violence that's really sort of data-led. Because so often with sexual violence, you get this, this, this thing of, well, sexual violence is everywhere and universities are part of, you know, the general society and, you know, it happens it happens on in the clubs or it happens on the way to the university, but it's not actually happening in the university. And actually there are things that universities can do. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned the states because they are a you know, the United States obviously universities who get state funding have a legal mandate to collect and publish sexual violence, data on sexual violence on their campuses using the ARC Free, which we talk about in the series quite a lot, which is the Administrator Research at Campus Climate Collaborative. So, you know, this isn't new. It's not that it can't be done. There's no lack of precedence, but there is, and I say this with all the will in the world, there is a lack of will, unfortunately. <laughs> and it's I will caveat that by saying it's not necessarily that this is because people don't care. So I'm not sort of saying that, you know, university echelons are full of people apologising for sexual violence and doing nothing about it. But I do think that there are attitudes that need to be challenged. And that's why we wanted to do this and look at what difficulties the the sector was happening in was having even in preventing us from getting really good quality and open access data on these issues. So obviously I don't want to give <laughs> I don't want to give it away, but you know, we have articles looking at things around concern around institutional reputation. We're, you know, contextualizing that within a climate where we are recruiting more international students and what kind of messages does, you know, high levels of sexual violence appearing in the data send to families of international students who might be wanting to send their students here. We are looking at things like academic and professional service staff workload and the challenges that poses in publishing and disseminating findings, looking at wellbeing support for those involved in the work. And we're also looking at this conversation around like data literacy. So obviously, Jim, you said earlier, 
which pricked my ears up to Pete that, you know, we can't demonstrate whether this is working, but actually we can demonstrate this is working. And that's by increasing data literacy around this. So things like letting people know and communicating that actually when complaints go up in an institution, that is really good thing because it's showing that there's an increase of trust in the institution. So if, if the level of sexual violence institutes inc- incidents in your institution is going up in your data, that can actually demonstrate that your outreach, that your well-being, that the ease of access for your complaints procedure is, is simple to use, is easy to find and is effective for students. And I think the other conversation we need to be having around this is what, and this is something we might be looking to do at the end of the series, but what what do institutions do with data when it tells them something that they don't want to hear? So, you know, for example, and the two examples I have on this are the studies where students say 80% of students and in another study, 95% of students are uncomfortable with staff hitting on them. You know, that is data, which is so apparent and so indicative of what needs to be done and yet is routinely ignored. So there's, there's a conversation around when data tells us something as a sector we don't want to address, what do we do with that? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Jess, Arif Ahmed started his new job, the Director for Academic Freedom and Freedom of Speech at OFS over the past couple of weeks, got his badge. And interestingly, over the summer, I was in an event with a bunch of students, union officers and staff, and, and they were saying, look, you know, if, if, you, if you do a workshop, as OFS is likely to mandate soon, on something like harassment, you're not just talking about sexual violence for a start, you're also talking about racial harassment. And, you know, if a group of students walks out of a workshop and says, I'm now concerned about microaggressions, there's a whole culture war about to descend on the sector saying, well, this is a bogus ideology. This, this is about to get very complicated, isn't it? There's always been a red line when it comes to the difference between free speech and harassment that universities need to be really careful to define and to make sure their students know the definition of. It might sound really, really basic, but yeah, in a world in which you are both having to do more to tackle harassment, which is a good thing, and more to promote free speech, which is also a good thing, it requires a lot of work in the in the middle ground between those two to make sure that people understand yes. the I difference. Mean, yeah, you know, you know, legal, legal, but harmful. But, you know, I think they are two separate things. As I've often said, that's complicated enough in the registrar's office with a, you know, legal firm in your ear. It's hard. It's even harder if you're trying to get that across to students and academics, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it's because people's definitions of these things are are, are different. And so that's, that's why I think it's, it's, it's a particular, you know, again, somewhere you want to see leadership from the OFS, you want to see leadership from the universities on, on defining defining that and not leaving it down to students to define it for themselves. Because as you say, that's when you're going to get into a mess between trying to do trying to do two good things simultaneously, causing a causing a confusion in the middle. I don't sort of envy anyone having to unpick all of this. I, I do think both important enough that you, can't, you don't have to have one and not the other, if that makes sense. Yes. Pete, the other conversation we ended up having over the summer was a lot of this, you know, people say ought to be done at the kind of start of a student's career. And, you know, you've got harassment, you've got sexual misconduct, you've got free speech. There are people that would say you need to do climate education. There are people who say, you know, I've got a report in this week from YGAM who say we ought to be doing work on gambling harms with students in the first few weeks. This also comes the same week that UCU are targeting Freshers Week for strikes. I mean, where does this fit anywhere? Just pushed back gently on the trying to shoehorn everything into the first week. You know, I know that a lot of these things are covered in a a welcome week. But I think we want to avoid is a the kind of welcome to this university sexual assault and harassment fire explosion terrorism but you're going to have a great time 
no one's listening at that time either. They're all trying to kind of navigate their way. So I think there, there does need to be a message, but I think it needs to be constant and it needs to be throughout. And it needs to be, most importantly, close to the curriculum because that's where the students are as close as possible. So I don't think it should necessarily just fall on professional support service or kind of wider university message that comes out. I think it needs to be embedded into the curriculum. And I think setting the tone in teaching and learning spaces is really important so that you can tease out those areas around freedom of speech and controversy and the discomfort that comes from that often leads to some good learning but you need to be to do that kind of in a in a framework that's safe so that people can be free to speak but not cause offense but yes i think it needs to be 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 covered throughout and and it is possible to do that with with good kind of messages that will feature at the appropriate time but but I'm not sure trying to shoehorn everything into that kind of first interaction that you have in those first few weeks it is is valid as a, as a methodology to get the message into students' minds. And I think there needs to be a lot of kind of review for your second, third years, your PGTs and PGRs coming in to set the tone for them as well about the institution and make it clear what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Yes. I mean, look, Sunday, another conversation I've had this summer is I've heard that message from Pete before and it sounds right, but when increasing proportions of the sector are now made up of international PGTs. Both that idea that you can do this slowly gets challenged, but also that idea that you can encourage a student to to make a complaint can be challenged because by the time they've even heard back from stage one of a complaint, you know, their visa's probably run out. Oh, yeah. Do you know what? It's actually really interesting that you're bringing sort of demographics into this because uh, it was the University of Durham when they actually started openly talking about issues they had around sexual misconduct and harassment at their open days, their number of applications from women in that, it was a particular department, but I can't remember which one, the number of applicants from young women shot up after they started doing that, which I think is really important when we're talking about who is being intimidated by this being discussed early on and who is actually being reassured by it. Your point around the length of complaints is is really really important as well and it's actually something that we all t- we also talk about in the series and i am going to be insufferable and plugging that series every time i'm on the podcast apologies in the similar way that i plug belonging i do also think that you're right to raise concerns about this sort of being like a one-off tick box exercise and something i talk about a lot is that the conversation around sexual violence needs to be led by students because students have particularly Gen Z, and I know that not all students are coming from school or Gen Z or are Gen Z, but, and I know I talk about this a lot, but it's because it comes out in all my conversations because obviously I talk to people who are senior in universities and I also talk to students who are 18. The concepts around consent vary so much between that these generations that the people in institutions who are defining what is an act of sexual violence has a different understanding to what sexual violence is to the student. So if a student is putting in a complaint and saying this is an act of sexual violence that I've experienced and the institution is turning around and saying we don't define that as sexual violence, that student may then take that complaint externally. They may take it to the OIAHE. Like it drags out, you know, there are so many things that can be like the time can be limited, making it less traumatic for the student. This isn't what should be the main motivation, making it less bureaucratic and messy for the institution. If we put students at the forefront of this conversation 
And students are also more likely to listen to their peers. That is something that I think culture change have evidenced that peer-led sessions around consent and sexual violence are more effective than a university sort of saying, hello, as Pete said, here's where the fire exits are and here's how not to assault someone. It's a lot more effective if it becomes an, an ongoing conversation that students students lead. But of course, you know, if, <clears throat> if it's students that are leading those kind of discussions and workshops, then uh, when they're on the front page of the Sunday, Sunday Telegraph for being woke... It'll be you they have to blame Sunday. So. Oh, yeah, it's true. No, no, do you know what? That is a really good point, actually. And student union officers have often come in the firing line for things like drug harm reduction strategies and sex work safety initiatives as well. So I think you're right to flag that. And I think that's where it's really important that the partnership thing comes into play. So I think you'll see that Durham University put out a really good, influential and strong statement defending it's student union officers with their sex work safety initiative. And I thought that that was one of the really defining moments of partnership in the sector when a university turns around and says, no, do you know what? We're really proud of our students for doing this. So while I'm saying this is student led, it definitely shouldn't be fully student owned. And that, yeah, there needs to be that institutional support there as well. But that's because Durham has got a senior member of, of staff who's who's really switched on and maybe, you know, maybe considered woke. But if that's woke, I'm woke. I love it. I want to be part of that. I stand as the overlord of woke alongside that senior colleague there because it's important you know people need to feel safe and if that's what being woke is then great now every week on the show we look back at how things were and how things came to be with academic registrar and sector historian mike ratcliffe here's the hidden history of he one of the challenges for universities is how they engage with the government and its workforce planning needs so in the 20th century the biggest part of that was us thinking about how we were going to deliver teacher training. So we started, we engaged with day students, but there was a lot of teacher training that happened outside the universities. During World War II, there was a big plan for a new education system, which would require a big increase in teachers. So the government set up some committees, and the McNair report set out the challenge. The universities were doing their own expansion uh, post-war, so the plan was to massively increase the number of teacher training colleges, so that they would keep them to the same current scale that they were at, a couple of hundred students in each of them. The Church of England had very cleverly decided to close a few um, teacher training colleges just before the war, um, and they couldn't be reopened, but it fell to the local authorities to, to get on and find a new way of doing that. So, because it was an emergency, they had to do it quickly. But because it was an emergency and we'd just been through the war, there were all sorts of problems. The key was, there wasn't going to be a lot of building materials. So... It was a chance to think how to reuse other buildings that they had. So the emergency colleges were spread out for two reasons. One, you had to find the buildings for them. But two, because this was teacher training, you needed placements for the students to go to. So they put them out all over the country. So the kinds of buildings they reused were kind of interesting. So Bletchley Park was used, so the students were trained in the huts that were used by the codebreakers. The Coventry College of Education was in Nissen huts. Middle St George... Middleton St George College of Education was in an RAF based and Lucky Shenston Teacher Training College was in the form of prison or war camp. But the most fun was that this was an opportunity to reuse country houses. Obviously people had decided they could no longer sustain them and they'd been given or compulsorily purchased by local authorities. So some of the colleges got going in grand stately homes. And they're dotted around the country. So Eton Hall in Retford, Kestephen College of Education, Grantham. Uh, Lady Mabel College was in the very grand Wentworth 
building, Newton Park um, near Bath, um, Northumberland College of Education was in Kirkley Hall, um, there was in one in Annick Castle, yeah, the Harry Potter place. So lots of different places spread out all over the place. You can fill it up quickly, you can build the student accommodation next to it, um, and there you, there you are from running. Sometimes the emergency college is moved, so uh, the Bletchley Park lot moved to Wheatley uh, near Oxford. Generally, the emergency colleges did well to start, but then they had problems. They were disproportionately amongst those that were closed in the 1970s. There were issues that they couldn't expand, and I imagine there were issues about where they were distributed. It was one thing to be a residential college in the 1950s, a mile up a drive from a small village, but that's not exactly what students were looking for as we got into the 70s. So lots of them merged either with other um, teacher training colleges or into the new polys. So Bognor Regis joins Bishop Otter to become uh, the West Sussex Institute of Education, now the University of Chichester. So as we've contracted and expanded teacher education, these colleges have gone backwards and forwards. But sadly, we have few of them left in those Parkland settings. Bath Spa, I think, is, is the main example. Bretton Hall was one of the last to, to finally close in 2007. But what was interesting, and what we, we might come back to, is that there was a, this was a rare example of spatial planning. There was a planning committee uh, run out of the government, and it made plans to dot these things around. And a lot of the places they've now left has never got back their higher education. So towns uh, like Brentwood or Grantham or Retford or Rugby or Wakefield have lost their higher education because we retreated from the spatial planning of teacher training. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, finally this week, great news on Horizon this morning, but more broadly, we've been asking whether research security should be back on the agenda this autumn Sunday. Yes. So this week on the site, we are asking whether research security will be back on the agenda. And in particular, the question of research collaborations with partners or overseas partners based in autocratic states. And this is particularly in the area of sensitive technologies with military applications. So. China is recurrent here, and obviously they're also a important, well-established research partner for UKHE. The Foreign Affairs Committee has published a report this week looking at the UK relationship with Indo-Pacific sort of areas, and they were calling for research collaboration and educational exchange with countries like Japan, Taiwan, Indonesia, 
And they want to sort of advocate this to avoid over-reliance on a single partner. So, for example, China. And this is basically a sort of case study in research collaboration as foreign policy. And there's also the potential for sort of how universities might be collaborating with Iran to set the agenda on this. And that was after a report earlier this summer that there are 11 UK universities who have collaborated with Iranian institutions in areas with potential Iranian military applications. And this was under a headline, Iran's suicide drones are being developed by British universities. So, you know, not really the best look for the sector. And the government have announced an internal investigation into the matter. So we're sort of waiting to see what's going to come out of that this autumn. Tricky, tricky stuff. And I guess, Jess, the kind of, you know, the horizon news will make everyone feel a bit more comfortable about being able to kind of, there's just less controversy when you collaborate with European partners, ironically. Yeah, one of the things the sector's been saying for sort of the last two years on Horizon is it's it's not just about funding, it's about partnership. And, and the partnership is of, often more important because if, if you're going to set up a UK-owned scheme where you're going to run around the world trying to find research partners to sort of recreate what Horizon can offer, you're exposing yourself to a huge amount more risk than being able to pop over to France or Germany or Spain and sort of collaborate with them. So I think, you know, one of the one of the most sort of significant things that will happen now, now Horizon's all been confirmed, is isn't just that there's going to be a lot more money kind of pumped into UK R and D, but that sort of partnership, foreign policy side, just just looks a lot more secure than than it did than it did sort of two years ago. And the UK sort of thinks sometimes it can exist as an island on this, and there's this tension that universities have to to deal with, where the government says, you know, go go forth and partner on research with those guys, give them a huge amount more guidance than that. So hopefully this is a sort of step in the right direction on, on research as foreign policy. That, that, that kind of buccaneering trading nation, you know, that whole kind of post-Brexit thing, Pete. I mean, are people starting to see some of the challenges with that, that, that kind of push? Yeah, stop me before I start singing Land of Hope and Glory. But I think there's been, I think there's been a very steady realisation recently. I suppose a lot of people who've been fortunate enough to get out of the country and see how the rest of the world is doing and hear from people overseas maybe realise that that English exceptionalism we've encountered is not working out for us. It's also working out in the kind of underinvestment in institutions and that kind of we don't like other people theme that comes through. For example, there's huge weights for research students and research colleagues to come over in terms of visas, I think the wait at the moment is up to 100 days when it should be within 30 days. And although we've got the good news today on Horizon, that's really scuppering people who, instead of going to Canada or, or going to other institutions, and, and the genesis of those decisions is based on they're taking longer because there's a, there's a concern about research security and research integrity, which absolutely has its place. But without that underpinning infrastructure, we can't claim to, to, to speak strongly about it. And in our actions as well as a, as a nation, and, and as some institutions, I don't think we're we're demonstrating that as well. So yeah, I'm I'm not sure that that what people expected it's it's turned out to be. One of the things I think that's really really interesting is that the Conservative government, especially, what it has pushed the sector to do is you know to say outwardly that it is not naive to risk and to set better red lines for its international partnerships and to collaborate more with the sort of Foreign Office, with the security services, have a more open culture when when talking about research. 
I think we're going to see a lot of that when Labour comes in as well. You know, the current Labour sort of shadow cabinet is increasingly sort of China sceptic in the same way that the Conservatives are. I don't think we're going to see a sort of huge amount of change there. You know, so we've we've had an election, and I don't think this issue is is going to go away. And what it will sort of require universities to be able to do is, you know, in the event of a you know a geopolitical event happens, a, one country invades another country, universities have to be much more agile at turning off a research partnership at the same speed that it can, you know, sometimes turn them on. And I think that's what everyone is sort of, you know, towing around at the minute is that in, in a sort of increasingly hostile sort of geopolitical world. You can't just say stand aside as a university and partner with whoever you like. I think that's just going to be a theme that carries on throughout the next next few years. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Pete, Jess, Sunday, Mike, Michael, who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.